morning is Palm Sunday, you may have noticed. Palm Sunday is a day in church history that traditionally kicks off Holy Week as it causes us to remember an event that is commonly called the triumphal entry. That Jesus entered the city as a triumphal, peaceful king. That's the symbolism of him riding a donkey into the city while the crowd waves palm branches. That he came as a king, but he wasn't coming to bring war. He was coming to bring peace. But more importantly, he didn't come just to be declared the king. He came to Jerusalem as the king that he might, just as the beginning, just as his plan had been from the beginning of time, that he might be crucified, that he might die on our behalf, to die for our sins and the sins for all men. That was his greater purpose. So one of the great takeaways from the triumphal entry, a story, by the way, that's told in all four Gospels, is that the triumphal entry gives us a picture of the right worship of Jesus. It gives us a picture of his right position in our lives. That is, that he is the king. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're called to not only acknowledge him as the king, but far more specifically, to make him your king. That is, that he is the king of your life. That is, that he is the one that's in control. He's the king. That's why we call him the Lord. Now, I want us to hold on to that idea that Jesus is the king because it's going to be a central concept for us as we weave our way through the text this morning, as we consider what Genesis 11 has to say to us, because it's going to stand in direct contrast to the work of man that we'll see here in Genesis chapter 11. So as we turn there this morning, I want to do a little work to clean up some details, some things that will be helpful to us. So last week we finished the story of Noah in chapter 9. And being good Bible readers, you might expect chapter 10 to come after chapter 9, wouldn't you? Well, maybe. According to the text it does, but not according to the chronology of the text. That is, what you find if you carefully read your Bibles, is that chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, actually come chronologically before chapter 10. Let me explain this to you. That is, within the story of the descendants of Noah, chapter 10 and parts of chapter 11 tell us that Noah's descendants spread out and where they went, but they don't tell us why. The nine verses at the beginning of chapter 11 tell us why they spread out. And I share that with you because if you've been reading along in Genesis and you come to a verse like Genesis 10:5, which says, From these, the coastline peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans in their nations. You're going to be pretty confused. And to be fair, a verse like that shows up in Genesis 20 and in Genesis 10, 31. So when you come to something like Genesis 11, 1, which says the whole earth had one language and the same words, you're going to be pretty confused, right? You're going to think the Bible made a mistake. And yet it didn't. Friends, we need to know you should have great confidence in the text you have before you. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, they were told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. When Noah and his family got off the ark, they were told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so what you move into in chapter 10 is Moses illustrating for us the disobedience of Noah's family. And 
the disobedience of all of man. Why? Because they weren't spreading out. Rather, they were starting to concentrate. They were starting to build cities. And so what Moses does as he's giving us this text is he starts to reveal the disobedience of man to show us the problem. And then he points to the discipline of God to show us God's resolve. That's what we're going to find here in chapter 11, God's discipline and his resolve. So let's go there. Genesis 11, 1 through 4. I'm going to read it in one grouping. Listen carefully. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And as they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, I wanted to read that to you in one chunk. Because I wanted you to keep in mind the call to fill the earth and then what you find here. Do you see the disobedience? Do you see the reluctance to follow the plan of God? It's a bit like Cain killing Abel having known Adam and Eve. Or the men around the time of Noah who were so proud and full of sin that they completely forgot God. And what we have here is now once again a people created by God protected by God, delivered by God, a people who would have known the story of Noah, would have understood his protection, a people who could have known, pointed at, looked at, and been related to Shem, Ham, or Japheth, yet completely choosing to disregard God. You get off the boat, God tells you to do one thing. It's not that hard. So what should we do? The opposite. You find a people walking in disobedience choosing their own will, and choosing their own path. Consider this for a moment. The shift in the text starts in verse 3, when they come up with this crazy new technology called the brick. You might have seen them before. It is worth pointing out that some of the earliest known uses of bricks actually come from the area this text is pointing to, an area that would have been in modern-day Iraq. But friends, what it's doing here is it's saying something that when God says, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, that rather than obeying, rather than doing what God called them to do, they stopped and they fiddled and they tinkered and they plotted and they planned and they came up with a brick, which is not a spread out and fill the earth kind of technology. You know, if they come up with a wheel, we'd give them some credit. But they come up with the brick. And I have no problem with bricks. But the challenge to bricks is it's a permanent technology. It says, let's stay here. Let's disregard what God's calling us to do. It says, let's make ourselves a home. There's something about technology. There's something about how its use leads us to trouble. And it's something about how it, what it reveals about us. Because watch what happens after the brick. Verse 4. Then they said, come... Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. 
Do you see that they're actually fighting the will of God? Lest we be dispersed. We know God's called us to be dispersed. We know God has a plan for us to be dispersed. We don't want to be dispersed. Therefore, let's make bricks. It's kind of like they accomplished something and they got all proud. We made a brick. Look at us. Look how awesome we are. Now let's make a city. And in that city, let's make a tower. And with our bricks and with our city and with our tower, let's make a name for ourselves. We will be famous. And the more you read verse 4, the more you see a text that's absolutely dripping with human pride. And friends, we have to be so careful with pride. We have to be so, so very, very careful because it is pride that looks at the throne of your life and demands to be the king. It's pride that looks at the options sitting in front of us and decides that my plan is better than God's plan. It's pride sitting in front of us that says we should develop bricks. Consider what the scriptures say about pride. Psalm 10.4 In the face of his pride, the wicked does not seek him. All of his thoughts are, there is no God. It's a great picture of pride. Pride in and of itself denies God. It reeks of our own sufficiency. I'm enough. I can do it. I can accomplish it at all. Never, ever, ever acknowledging that every one of those statements denies God. You're not enough. That's okay. He is. You're not sufficient. That's okay. You weren't supposed to be. You weren't made to be. He is. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride sets us up and wipes us out. Proverbs eleven two. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Finally, listen to what Peter says in the New Testament. Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. But pause there for a second. Because who does the exalting? God. In pride, it's us exalting ourselves. It's like, God, you're not taking, you're taking too much time. I deserve this. I'm entitled to this. I should be given this. I'm going to exalt myself. What God says through Peter is, humble yourselves under the mighty right hand of God. Trust in Him. Trust in who He is. Trust in His sufficiency. He'll make something of you. Don't worry about that. Casting all of your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour when you take that whole text together, it says something about pride. It tells us that we have this desire to want to be something, to exalt ourselves, to want to lift ourselves up. And when we do, the evil one is prowling. And he's ready to tear us apart. 
read an interesting little quip on the internet over the weekend. It said, pastors, this is funny, should be a lot like Amazon boxes. Our job is to deliver the good news, then be folded up, put away, and forgotten. That was awesome. Yeah, we live in a day when people want to be famous. They want to be something. They want to be somebody. Why can't I? I need a bigger following. I need a bigger audience. I need a it's human pride. And it gets all of us if we're not careful. One last proverb, Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Takes us back to the word we've used a couple of times from the book of Judges. Every man did what was right in their own eyes. We're all tempted in and of our own human wisdom to decide to discern what is right. What should I do? What should my plan here be? How do I go forward? Proverbs seems to say we're going to think it's right. There's a way that seems right to a man, which means if you argue it with them, they're going to dig in their heels. Why? Because they're full of pride. And where does that pride lead? According to the text, death. That's the danger of pride. So what's God's response to pride? What's his response to the disobedience of man? It's telling in a lot of ways. Verse 5. It says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the man, children of man had built. The imagery here is intentional. It's an intentional verbiage picked out by Moses wanting you to see The man wanted to build this great tower. Men wanted to build this huge thing to reach out to God, to rival him, to reach out to him. And yet God comes down to see him. God has to descend. Moses wants to make it pure and claimed by the language, by this artistic language that we are small and puny, even in our greatest accomplishments. (laughs) We're going up to see God. God's like, yeah, I'm going to come down to see you. Wants to make it clear that they weren't getting even close. Most people think the Tower of Babel, by the way, was a ziggurat. They're ancient buildings. Um, You can still find them now. You can still find them. There are, uh, there's one at Ur. You can look it up. A ziggurat at Ur. You can Google it later, see a picture of them. Probably eight stories high. Pretty impressive for the time. Not very impressive if you consider, you know, modern technology. We get way further into the clouds. They didn't get close. So God came down. Verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Friends, This is from the Word of God. Consider its implications. We are capable of absolutely anything. And that's not a good thing. Consider the world we live in now in 2019. By the way, in my mind, I was about to say 2012. Kind of comfortable with it being 2012. But consider the world we live in, 2019. We're commonly, as a culture, getting to one language. And if it's not English, it's technology. We have people around the world working on the same things, and we're going, look at all these great achievements. Look how awesome we are. 
Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Consider everything over the last two decades that's been proposed. Can we clone sheep? Yep. Can we clone people? Of course we can. We can do all kinds of stupid things. What we've never cued in on is that it's stupid. Technology has a, it's got a role. It's got a use. And the problem with technology isn't technology. You could consider anything from the brick to the internet to anything. And in and of themselves, these are not bad inventions. It's not what you do with them that matters. Because the problem is not with clay or circuitry. The problem is the human heart, right? It's pride. It's what we do with what we come up with that starts to become the issue. So what you find here in Genesis 11 is a God who looks at us, looks at our pride, looks at our situation as we come up with a brick and we build a city and we build a tower to express how awesome we are. And God who in his right could have smite all of them chose a different path. Let's look and see what he does. Verse 7. Come let us go down and, and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. What we find here is a loving father stepping in. Just as God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, just as he flooded the earth and restarted everything, God again creates judgment, but it's different this time. This time in response to the pride of men who deserve judgment, a loving father steps in, not to smite them out. That hadn't helped a lick, right? Nobody learned from the killing of Abel. Nobody learned from all these people being wiped out in the flood. It's not a useful tool. So God changes what happens here. He changes their languages. He does a loving father thing. And this is what it looks like. Verse 8. So the Lord dispersed them from there over all the face of the earth. And they left off building the city. And therefore its name was called Babel because the Lord confused their languages of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. A loving father steps in and does a loving father thing. Says you're doing something that's going to lead to your utter demise. And I could smite you. I could wipe you out. But I'm going to redirect you. I'm going to give you other chances. I'm going to give you other opportunities. Knowing full well, you'll probably blow it. Friends, we're to be reminded that Jonah went the other way. And yet God had a plan for the Ninevites to be preached to and for them to repent. So he turned Noah's course, or Jonah's course. God had a plan for the people of the earth to spread out. Why? Because it was good for them. A loving father had something better in mind for them, better than they would choose for themselves. So you see a picture of a loving father at work doing the things that they would not do for themselves. It's like a kid playing in the highway. And a dad comes along, picks him up, and puts him back in the sandbox. That's what we find here. 
<laughs> you're playing in a territory that's a little dangerous for you. Let me help you. Let me put you in a safe place. And God allows the languages to be confused, which forces the people to disperse. Now, I want to digress for just a moment before we get to applications of this text. Because Genesis 11 has some pretty incredible implications if we lean into them. Now, they're not the point of the text, but they're pretty incredible things that need to be pointed out if you're studying it on your own. For example, Genesis 11 gives explanation to the reality that there are over 6,000 languages in the world, most of whom do not have a common root or common alphabet. It helps us to understand that. How did we get here? But far more than that, Genesis 11 also helps us to understand the root of ethnicity and race. That is, as the people groups divided and spread, it started to narrow out the localized gene pool. Now, I'm a pastor. I'm not a geneticist. I don't want to play outside my field. So I'm going to quote somebody else. I'll let him play outside his field. This came from my seminary notes. The separate language groups no longer could intermarry freely with the rest of mankind. You know, you move, everyone moves this way, you move this way, you move this way, all of a sudden you don't have the intermarrying. As inbreeding and lack of access to a larger gene pool, a larger pool of genes occurred, ethnic characteristics developed. Furthermore, each local environment tended to favor selection of certain traits and elimination of others. Ethnic characteristics such as skin colors arose from the lack of genetic variability. It get, we get really technical after that. I'm not a geneticist. I'm playing anymore. But what you need to see is that Genesis 11 starts to point out to us things about the earth. It tells us why the people spread out. It points to why people speak different languages and ultimately why people all over the earth look different. And there's a lot to be said there. There's a lot we could lean in on that. But the problem with leaning into any of those things is that it misses the greater emphasis of the text, which is human sin, which is pride. And friends, we have to be so keenly aware of its presence and of its effects. So on this Palm Sunday, we need to put our pride in check. Because you cannot, with one hand, raise a palm branch to proclaim him the one true king and walk out and proclaim your independence, your strength, and your sufficiency. See, these two ideas of Palm Sunday and the Tower of Babel are in total contrast of one another. On one hand, we want to proclaim Jesus is the King. He's enough. He's the Lord. He's sufficient. I will bow down to Him. And on the other hand, we want to be like, I'm awesome. I'm doing great. I can do everything. We want to build ourselves up, make much of ourselves. And you can't do both. For if you've believed in Jesus, if you have confessed Jesus as Lord, you've given up your independence. And you're now called to live on His dependence, on His strength, and on His sufficiency. Friends, there's something about these two texts. We bring them together. you got to see it for a moment to appreciate. If you've never believed in Jesus Christ, the idea of who is the king of your life matters. 
Who are you going to exalt? Whose name is more important? Is it yours or is it his? Is it make much of Ben today or does it make much of Jesus? See, that's the question we need to wrestle with and probably need to wrestle with daily. Was that decision about Ben or was it about Jesus? I'll confess to you, there are a whole lot of decisions that get made about Ben. There are a whole lot of moments where I go, ah, oh, my kids want me to do this, my wife wants me to do this, but Ben wants to take a nap. And Ben needs to get over himself on a lot of those days. Ben needs to die to himself on a lot of those days. Ben needs to figure out he's not the Lord. These two texts, when you set them side by side, these two ideas that Jesus is king, and yet we try to be. If you've never believed in Jesus, can I just tell you, Jesus is a better king. And the Tower of Babel is such a great illustration of that. Because you may not realize you're playing in the highway. You may not realize the peril you're facing. And you need somebody with a different perspective to pick you up and pluck you somewhere safer. And you will find no place safer in all of anywhere than Jesus. I would plead with you to call Christ King. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you call him Lord, let me finish this morning with Paul's words to the Philippian church. I changed versions on you. I'm coming at you in the NIV 84. Why? Because I memorized it that way and I knew I was going to end up there. So I didn't want to confuse you. So I'm just going to call it is what it is. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. Paul says, if you've received anything at all from your salvation, if you've received anything at all from being united with Christ, verse 2, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, by thinking like Jesus. This is He plays out that out. Having the same love, loving like Jesus. He'll play that out. Being one in spirit and purpose. Jesus is your king. Therefore, you are going to live him out in spirit and in purpose. Your spirit, his spirit. Your purpose, his purpose. You walk into the grocery store, it's Jesus' purpose, not yours. Folding laundry, it's Jesus' purpose, not yours. You're dealing with something in your life you don't like to deal with, it's Jesus' purpose, not yours. Being one in spirit and purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do not exalt yourself as the king, because you're not. But in humility, consider others better. Better than yourselves. Each of you who have believed in Jesus should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. That your attitude, because you're one spirit and one purpose, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. 
It's a great week to consider this, right? We're going into Holy Week. We're walking in the Passion Week. If you haven't picked up a, a Easter Reading Week Bible plan, you should. Start reading through one of the Gospels. Start taking on everything that Jesus takes on this week for our sin. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, verse 6, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. If God, who's actually God, can lower himself all the way, you, who are not God, don't have very far to go. Made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Friend, Palm Sunday, he goes to Jerusalem. He goes there to die. He humbles himself. That walk to Jerusalem is like, I'm going here to die. I'm going here to lower myself for these people. I'm going to love them. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, just like these people spread out because God had declared they would, your knee will bow because he's the Lord. You could choose for it to. You can lower yourself. You can avail yourself to Jesus Christ. You can call him the king. You can believe in him. But if you live a life denying that, rejecting that, running from that, it doesn't change the fact that he's Lord. The question I want you to walk away considering is this. Do you live for his name? Or do you live for your name? Whose name will be exalted today? Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for your word. Thank you that in it we know you. You've revealed yourself to us. And what an incredible, beautiful picture of our God that you're self-revealing. You tell us about yourselves. We want to know about you. God, you give us your heart. You give us your character. You reveal yourself to us. And you also reveal our humanity. Father, all of us here, Every last person struggles with pride. We all fight over it. We all desperately want to be the king of our life. And Father, I pray and I ask and I beg, Father, that you would grant us the ability to bend down, to humble ourselves to acknowledge you as king, to acknowledge you as Lord, not just as a statement of salvation, but as a life position. 
that in every day, in every moment, in every experience, that you would be the Lord, you would be the King, that you would reign and rule over all of it. That we live in your strength, not ours. In your sufficiency, not ours. And according to your plan, and not ours. Thank you, God, that you are a loving Father. And when we were in trouble, you came and rescued us. You sent your son to pay the price, to pay the penalty, to defeat sin, to defeat pride, to defeat death, so that we might be saved. Thank you for loving us so well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.